Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to a history of Europe, Que Battles, the Spanish Armada of 1588, part two of five. Last week I briefly described the middle period of Tudor England, focusing on the reign of Queen Mary I, 1553 to 1558. In the first years of Elizabeth I, traditionally through the centuries, ties between the English and Spanish crowns had been friendly. A large reason for which was that both were rivals and neighbours of France. As queen, Mary elected to marry the heir to the Spanish throne and son of the Holy Roman Emperor Philip of Habsburg. Had Mary not died childless, those English ties to the empire in Spain may well have strengthened. Instead, on passing away in November 1558, she was succeeded by her younger sister. Elizabeth, in contrast to Mary, refused to form marriage ties with a foreign monarch, and led England away from Catholicism. Philip, meanwhile, inherited the Spanish throne as King Philip II, and laid claim to those territories and riches in the Americas, which at that time were being conquered by Spanish explorers. He also inherited lands in northern Europe, which more or less comprise the modern nations of Belgium and the Netherlands, which are the focus of this week's podcast. The topic covered today is the early days of a conflict known to history as the Dutch Revolt, sometimes given the time period of 1568 to 1609, and at other times a longer period of 1568 to 1648. And hence known as the Eighty Years' War. It is important to remember that the Low Countries had only recently been forged into a single political unit. It was the twenty-sixth of June, fifteen forty-eight, when Emperor Charles V, Philip's father, persuaded the Diet, or Parliament of the Holy Roman Empire, to permit him to make all his Netherlands provinces, which formed part of the empire, into a separate administrative unit. This act allowed him to pass them on to Philip, while leaving the remainder of his imperial lands to his younger brother Ferdinand. Over the centuries, the Low Countries had frequently put up fierce resistance against rule by any overlord. The first orders to achieve some kind of unity were the four Valois Dukes of Burgundy, described in previous podcasts. When the last of these, Charles the Bold, died at the siege of Nancy in 1477, his lands were inherited by the Habsburgs. 
Charles V worked hard to continue the process of unification, and between 1521 and 1543 took control of the city-states of Tournai and Cambrai, as well as lands north of the Rhine such as Friesland, Utrecht, Groningen and Gelderland. Upon this collection of ill-assorted collection of provinces, many of them with a long history of mutual hostility, the Habsburgs imposed a measure of cohesion. Geoffrey Parker, in his book on the Dutch Revolt, writes how a new sense of unity is evidenced in the language of the Netherlanders. The word patria, or fatherland, came to mean their country, instead of beforehand when it meant just their town or province. They began to regard the emblems of the Dukes of Burgundy, a red St Andrew's cross and a lion holding a sword and a sheaf of 17 arrows as their national emblem. However, despite a developing sense of common identity, the region still had a kaleidoscope of local institutions, traditions, legal systems and even languages. Individual towns were reluctant to give up on any of the charters of liberties and rights which they had gained through often bloody revolts in the 14th and 15th centuries. The region was also as economically strong as any other in contemporary Europe. Another great challenge for the rulers was that this was a time of religious ferment. Protestantism reached the Low Countries early on, which already in 1522 Emperor Charles V was trying to stamp out. In 1523, the first known Protestant martyr in the world was burnt at Brussels. Charles V, despite many other distractions, took a very considered line by carrying out what he considered was his religious duty of stamping out heresy, while at the same time trying his best to avoid inflaming tensions and provoke revolts. By the time of his abdication in 1556, Protestantism in the Low Countries was on the wane. Charles did, however, leave his son Philip II with a huge debt, thanks to the costs of numerous wars over the years. The burden of tax naturally created ill-feeling among their subjects. Already in 1557, Philip felt he had no choice but to default on some of his debts. Philip's style of government was very different from that of his father. Charles travelled often and widely throughout his empire. Having grown up in the Low Countries, he was considered by the Dutch as one of their own. Philip, in contrast, after the death of his wife, Mary I of England, set up residence in Spain, where he then stayed permanently. He wanted to personally manage every detail of state by himself, but his capacity to do so was undermined by slow communication with his distant provinces, and also by the necessity of constantly having to weigh the divergent interests within his empire. Moreover, Philip often had difficulty making up his mind, leading to months of delay in action being taken. By insisting on dealing with matters of trivia, he became too involved in fine details of administration, which would have been resolved faster if dedicated to his subordinates. If there were so many drawbacks to this system of working, why did Philip insist on it? Jill Kilsby, in her book Spain, Rise and Decline, 1474-1643, suggests that one reason is that Philip was highly conscientious, wanting to do the best for the people he governed. Another theory she offers is that he was very reluctant to trust anyone fully. Another explanation comes from Geoffrey Parker's book Imprudent King, A New Life of Philip II, where he praises in particular three achievements of the Spanish administration. Firstly, the king maintained the best network of informants in Europe. 
Secondly, Philip kept very well-ordered archives, and thirdly, he had at hand a superb courier service. But the problem was that together these seemed to have led Philip to overconfidence in his belief of how effectively he could make decisions and get them communicated and implemented across great distances. Another side of Philip was that he was a very pious man. He attended Mass daily, heard sermons at least once a week, and confessed and received communion four times a year. He also spent much time in private devotion. He inherited from his father a strong sense of duty, in particular his religious duty to protect Catholicism, both from external threats posed by Muslim powers and also the internal threat of Protestantism. The division of the empire by his father created challenges of a military nature. With Charles V had available German credit, soldiers and princes to back up his continent-wide strategy, Philip, lacking these, was obliged to build up the army and navy of Spain as his fighting force. In the early years of his reign, major conflicts were restricted to the Mediterranean, as his main priority was to confront the challenge of the expansionist Ottoman Empire. Another challenge was presented by the stark contrast in cultures between the two main centres of power in his realm, the Spanish court and the Low Countries. Whereas the Castilian nobility was steeped in the spirit of Reconquista and colonial acquisition, the culture of the Netherlanders was based more on the Renaissance, on trade and commerce, free thought and the strong defence of personal and local privileges. The author W.P. Blockmans writes in the book History of the Low Countries of this Cultural Divide. Quote, Between the stubborn and narrow monarch with a centralising vision for a world empire and the dynamic, pluriform society of the Low Countries, which Spanish courtiers could hardly imagine. This divide would, over time, prove to be the strategic advantage for the Dutch rebels. End quote. Part of the reason for the success of the Reformation in the Netherlands was that it represented a rejection of the status quo, which embodied the close relationship between the absolutist state and the Catholic Church. Philip appointed his half-sister, Margaret, Duchess of Parma, as the Governor-General of the Netherlands, although she had spent most of her life in Italy and had little knowledge of the region. From the start she struggled to overcome the independent spirit of the seventeen provinces and the ambitions of their nobility, led by William, Prince of Orange. They strongly resisted any attempt to centralise government, fearing a loss of their traditional power and prestige. Philip also created antagonism over his religious policies. He attempted to increase his control over the church in the Netherlands, with proposals to reform the Episcopate of the Netherlands, creating more bishops and strengthening the heresy laws. If the plans went through, Philip's political powers would also be enhanced, as the bishops would have seats in local and national assemblies. The Inquisition was also increased in size to counter the growth of Protestantism. In protest, early in 1566, the Dutch higher aristocracy went on strike by resigning their offices. The lower nobility in support demanded religious freedom and the suppression of the Netherlands Inquisition. Envoys were sent to Madrid in the summer and managed to obtain substantial concessions over religion from Philip, who had been warned of a potential rebellion. These concessions, however, were overtaken by events. 
On the 10th of August, 1566, St Lawrence's Day, a small group of Protestants entered a Flemish monastery and smashed all its images, in their minds symbols of the decadence of Catholicism. In the next few days, unrest rapidly spread. Gangs of Calvinist iconoclasts ran wild through the major cities of the Netherlands, desecrating churches and smashing images. Within a few weeks, they had smashed images and stained glass in over 400 churches and monasteries, and Calvinist congregations began to hold their own services in several of the churches. Philip was suddenly faced with a serious open revolt in one of the most prized portions of his father's inheritance. As usual, the king hesitated, unsure of whether to reimpose his authority in person, to adopt a policy of moderation, or to order a harsh military response. Conflicting instructions were received by Margaret as to what to do, creating long delays while she waited for clarification from Madrid. Fortunately for Philip, at around this time, Spain's economy was recovering thanks to a renewal of silver from the New World. This gave Philip the finances to go for the military option. He sent the Duke of Alba to the Netherlands with a large army to suppress the rebellion. On his way, the Duke received news of a successful restoration of order by Margaret of Parma, but was nevertheless ordered to resume his march. On Philip's instructions, a so-called Tribunal of Troubles was set up which sentenced over a thousand people to death for involvement in the riots and disturbances. For the next couple of years, his tough tactics seemed to be successful in putting down revolt and the rebel leader, William of Orange, was forced to flee. William had been born into high nobility and possessed various land holdings. He was raised in the court of Brussels, where he had loyally served the Habsburgs, first Emperor Charles V and then Margaret of Parma. However, unhappy with the centralisation of political power away from the local estates, and with the Spanish persecution of Dutch Protestants, William joined the Dutch uprising and turned against his former masters. William was unable to garner sufficient finances or external support for a counter-offensive, but nevertheless stayed a popular figure in the provinces, thanks to extensive propaganda campaign through pamphlets. Meanwhile, the previously good relations between Spain and England began to sour. It all began in November 1568, when five ships carrying around 40,000 florins in cash from Spain to the Netherlands were attacked by Huguenot pirates and forced to seek refuge in Southampton and Plymouth. Elizabeth agreed to protect the treasure, but the Spanish ambassador in England, Don Guerrero de Spes, became suspicious that the Queen intended to keep the money for her own use. It is not clear what English intentions were, but the incident suddenly got out of hand when the ambassador reported his suspicions to the Duke of Alba. In response, Alba ordered all English property in the Netherlands to be seized. King Philip followed suit and confiscated all English property in Spain. Elizabeth retaliated at once, and all trade between England and the Hispanic world ceased. Relations worsened further when the Spanish were discovered to be involved in a plot to assassinate Elizabeth, in what became known as the Rodolfi Plot. The plot was named after its main instigator, Roberto Rodolfi, a Florentine banker, who saw it as his mission to bring Elizabeth's cousin, Mary Queen of Scots, to the English throne, and to drive out the Protestants' faith from England. 
He had earlier tried to foment rebellion against Queen Elizabeth in the north of England. With the failure of the rebellion, he concluded that foreign intervention was needed. Rodolfi contacted the Spanish ambassador, Despais, who entrusted him with an ambitious plan which became known as the Enterprise of England. The plan called on King Philip to persuade the other states of Europe to boycott all trade with England and to support rebellion against Elizabeth. Despais even suggested that Philip could either support Mary's claim to the English throne or even claim it for himself. Philip asked the Duke of Alba, based in the Netherlands, to suggest how best to launch an attack on England. The Duke, however, advised against the venture, replying that he had used up all spare money to defeat William of Orange. As for Philip, he scarcely had sufficient finance himself, since he was in the midst of putting down a rebellion in Spain, the so-called Morisco Rebellion, where the local Muslim population were in revolt. News of the plot against Elizabeth's life reached her via her intelligence network. By gaining the confidence of the Spanish ambassador, the English noble John Hawkins learned the details of the conspiracy and notified the government so as to arrest the plotters. Rodolfi's messenger was arrested on about the 12th of April 1571 at Dover for carrying compromising letters and by the use of torture and prison informers he was forced to reveal the cipher of the messages he carried. The Rodolfi plot left a toxic legacy. By unravelling it, Elizabeth learned that Philip, her former ally and brother-in-law, had planned to murder her. Not surprisingly, she never trusted him again, and she increased the violence of all Catholics in England, and executed those she suspected of treason. She also started supporting privateering activity against Philip, against Spanish property in Spain and in the New World, and became prepared more openly to support rebels across the Channel in the Netherlands. The Queen's motivation was in part to support for the Protestants, but primarily it was the fear widely felt among the English that if King Philip succeeded in imposing control over the Dutch, then it would leave England vulnerable to Spanish aggression. The Netherlands could potentially be a perfect launchpad for sending troops over the Channel for an invasion. Thank you for listening to History of Europe, Key Battles. I hope you can join me next time for part three, where I talk about the growing tensions between England and Spain.